0: and I will be reading from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. This is taken from the NIV. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it
1: I want to begin this morning with two pictures. Um, the first picture I want to show you, and you might remember both of these pictures from the past, maybe not. That picture is a picture of a library in Ephesus. Beautiful, ornate ruins of a library in Ephesus. And inside that library in the ancient days, there were scrolls, manuscripts, what we would call books that people could look at, read, investigate, things on philosophy, things on religion, things on medicine. It was a great place to go. The second picture is a picture of something else. It's really almost right across the street in Ephesus. My wife and I were privileged to be there and to explore all these ruins. Of course, that's a stadium. Every major metropolitan area, shall we call it in Rome, had some form of a stadium. That was a gigantic stadium carved out of stone into the mountain. At that library, research was done. And people came from all different parts of the Roman Empire, To study there. At that stadium, huge numbers of people would show up for a theater production or for a speaker or for a debate. You know what those two things represent, apart from scholarship and debate and public speaking? They represent the power of Rome. Anybody who lived in that town would have understood what the buildings were for. And anybody who lived in that city would have cowered in the face of the power of Rome. Had they heard the emperor's name, inside they would have quaked just a little bit. They may actually have bowed down. You know what's true? Nobody in the world goes to Ephesus to study in a huge library. Most of the so called scholars that were housed in that library, nobody knows them. Nobody goes to Ephesus and gathers in a large crowd to hear the declaration of a public or official or a philosopher. And nobody in Ephesus is worried about the power of Rome. Nobody cowers at the name of the emperor. But you know what's happening today? Just today. Tens of millions of people around the globe are listening to the words of John. Tens of millions of people are either either reading the words of the gospel of John or listening to a proclamation that is based on John or listening to quotes that come from John. John. Roughly 2,000 years later, things have changed. And roughly 2,000 years later, a little-known pastor in Ephesus, who was John, is known all over the world. And influences tens of millions of lives. So who is this pastor in Ephesus? This author of the Gospel of John. Well, it was John. It was John, one of the inner circle in the life of Jesus. Three of the 12 disciples were routinely referred to together, Peter, James, and John. They were at the Mount of Transfiguration. They were at important events. They went into healings with Jesus when the other disciples did not. That's the author of the book of John. He's also this author by his own admission, an eyewitness to the events that he records. That's important to John. And it's distinctly different than, say for instance, the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is not written by an eyewitness. He collected the stories and the narratives from those who were eyewitnesses. John makes it abundantly clear, especially down near the end, The one who writes these words knows them to be true because he witnessed them. It's really important for John. There's something else about John. He's not an impartial observer. He's not a person who set out to chronicle history for history's sake. He even tells you at the beginning and throughout and to the very end. The reason I write this is for one purpose so that you might believe. I'm not going to take up the pen for any other reason. I don't need to write my gospel for any other reason. By the way, the other three gospels had probably already been written and were well known. I write this so that you will believe. Who? Who's he addressing? Well, he's addressing anybody who would read, but we think primarily he's addressing Gentiles in a way that some of the other Gospels were not. There's some interesting distinctives about John. First, consider the things that are in the other synoptic Gospels, the ones that are similar, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the things that are not present in John. For instance, in John, you don't have a birth narrative. No shepherds in a manger. In John, you have no baptism of Jesus to inaugurate his ministry. In John, you don't have Jesus being tempted by Satan and going into the wilderness. In John, you don't even have the Last Supper. And in John, you don't have Gethsemane. And also in John, actually there's no parables. It's not like the truth of the parables is absent from John, but they're not told in a parabolic way. As a matter of fact, John tells the story much differently. But when it comes to John's uniqueness, we find features that are absent from the other Gospels. First, absent from the other Gospels and in John is the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns the water into wine. Another example is the encounter with Nicodemus, probably the most famous line in the New Testament. John 3.16, not in any other gospel. Also, the encounter with the Samaritan woman, John and John alone. And this one is amazing. The raising of Lazarus, only in John. And finally, the farewell discourses at the end of of Jesus' life, when he's talking to the disciples and teaching them for the last time and letting them understand what it's going to be like in his absence, that's not described in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And as a part of that, the other three Gospels, they don't give the account of the foot washing that Jesus did for his disciples. Very interesting, isn't it? I would love to go on about that But I got a few other things to say. There's some fascinating details that are present. Now, for a moment, let me get scholastic with you. Just for a moment, okay? I probably uh, will bore some of you, but it won't be long. There are critics of every written book. And of course, there's critics of the New Testament and more critics of the New Testament probably than any other written books, and they're serious critics of John. And one of the criticisms that is laid at the feet of John is this critics question John's reliability. Why? Because John tells stories the other Gospels do not. Okay. Why does that make them unreliable? It doesn't. Not out of the gate. It makes him different. It makes his perspective an important, but in the synoptics, absent perspective. Illustration. Suppose I said to you that in 1415, a Bohemian Czech-German theologian died. That would be absolutely true. His name was John Huss. But suppose someone else recording that particular part of history said in 1415, John Huss died by execution. That would be true. Suppose a third author Said concerning that historical episode, John Huss died in 1415 by execution that was placed upon him in the burning of his body alive at the stake. That too would be true, but additional detail. Or suppose I said, John Huss died in 1415, he was executed. By burning at the stake, and the church did it. That too would be true. What have I said about this man named John Huss by the end of the story? Or what have the other authors said that I didn't say that's true and helps to understand John Huss? John Huss died as a martyr. All of those can be historically true, but not reported by every author. So I think it unfair to suggest that just because John records events that are not recorded in the other Gospels, his events are unreliable. You may remember last week, I described uh, stained glass windows in many churches across Europe that depicted the four Gospels. Remember, Mark was depicted with a man, Luke with a calf. You know what John is depicted as? An eagle. Why? Because John's gospel seems to have a lofty high, unlike all the other gospels' view of the reality that all 12 of them experienced. He says things about the events that no one else does. If you want a simple way to understand the difference between John and the other three Gospels, the other three Gospels basically say, this is what happened. And John says, this is what it meant. That's the difference. So what are the themes in the Gospel of John? It begins right at the beginning. And I mean the real beginning, not the birth narrative. It begins at the beginning. When John records in the beginning of his book, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Actually, John is threading the needle and being remarkably attuned to two different audiences. In the Jewish tradition, everybody would have understood the power of the Word of God. Again, in the beginning, in Genesis, the Word spoke things into being. God spoke and it was good. God spoke and God created. But there's a parallel that John wants to address, I believe. He wants to address his Greek culture. Of course, Roman, but influenced by Greek thinking. He wants to address his Greek culture. So what does he do? He captures the Old Testament image of word and translates it into Greek, namely logos, word. Why does he do that? Because a Greek reader or listener would understand exactly what he meant. They would understand because they believed that the divine word, logos, not the Jewish God, but some form of divine word dwelt In the world, in some fashion, not materially in the world, but eternally over the world. And in order to understand reality fully, you needed to enter in intellectually, even mysteriously, mystically, into divine logos. And then you could understand the reality of the world. John says, in effect, to his Greek readers... All your life, you've been fascinated by the Logos. Now I have a message for you. The Logos became flesh. Boom. For both audiences. Absolutely mind-blowing. No longer, he says to the Greeks... Is the logo, Logos a shadowy reality in eternity that we try to reflect in some mystical way? The Logos is the person of Jesus Christ. Now you know and can understand the very heart of God. John says that in ways that none of the other Gospels do. Second theme in John that I think is remarkable. John speaks of miracles in completely different language. Matter of fact, he doesn't even call them miracles. He calls them signs. Signs for a reason. Because John's emphasis is that there's always something behind the material reality of the miracle. So for instance... Whenever John talks about the feeding of the 5,000, the application almost immediately is to Jesus, the bread of life. Whenever John speaks about the healing of the blind man, there's a long description of how spiritual blindness relates to the story of the blind man. When he tells the story of Jesus raising Lazarus, He doesn't say, wow, look at this miracle. He puts in the words, the mouth of Jesus when speaking to the sisters. I know you think I've got the power to raise the dead, but that's not the main point. The main point is this. I am The resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? That's the main point. Do you believe that? Resurrection of Lazarus is just a sign of another reality. Miracles, according to John, are not isolated acts. They're windows into a deeper reality. I want you to imagine just for a moment that you lived in a house without windows or a mansion without windows or a castle without windows. And in that mansion or castle, you had everything you needed. The servants brought you anything that you wanted upon command. You could do anything that everyone else could do outside the castle and more but there's no windows in your mansion. And then, then they install windows. And for the first time, you see the outside world. And you begin to realize that the outside world has a tremendous amount to do With your experience of reality. That the outside world, which includes weather, affects your reality even inside the mansion. That the outside world, in terms of what people are saying or doing, affects your world inside the mansion. That the outside world is part of a reality that really existed even though you didn't see it. And even though you'd never experienced it. And your mind is expanded and you understand reality in a new kind of way. Now transfer that image to the notion of a sign in John's gospel. John says, I'm going to open the window for you. On reality. I'm going to give you a view of reality that you never had. If you take a look at these signs that Jesus did, they're an open door, a splitting of the curtain, so that you can see the eternal reality of the material existence that you live in. The second thing I want to mention, actually, third, it's a theme in John. Is the importance of a decision. Again, as I mentioned, John's not just a historian, although he is historical. John has Jesus always calling for a decision. He asks you to choose between light and darkness. He asks Nicodemus to choose whether or not he will be born again or not. He asked the Samaritan woman, what is it you seek? And she says, I'm looking for the Messiah. And he says, <laughs> paraphrase, stop, my dear. Stop looking. You're looking at him. Make a decision to follow me. As I mentioned Same thing was true with Lazarus. Make a decision. You know, John does not have Jesus inviting us into a dialogue and then asking the question whether or not we think that some of Jesus' ideas are really good to incorporate into our life. It's all or nothing. It'd be wonderful to incorporate some of the ideas of Jesus into your life without following Jesus. I'm all for that, but that's not what John presents. John presents in the words of Jesus, are you going to make a decision for me? Because when you make a decision for me, you inherit eternal life. Because I am life. There's a fourth thing that's a distinction in John. It's the emphasis on the Holy Spirit. It's not as though the Holy Spirit is absent in, the synoptic, absent in the synoptic gospels. It's just that John tells it in a different way and expands on it and helps the disciples to understand. Especially understand what is about to happen when he leaves and goes back to the Father. You will not, he says, don't worry, you won't be orphans when I leave, you won't be alone. The Comforter is going to come, but he's not going to come until I leave. Don't worry, when the Comforter comes, you don't have to worry about whether or not you can get it right, whether or not you can remember all the facts. The Holy Spirit, the Advocate, is going to teach you, and he's going to allow you to recall the things that I've said The disciples might have had great memories, but they didn't have the kind of memories on their own that would give us the Gospels. Furthermore, he says, this presence of the Holy Spirit, it's essentially my presence. Even though you can't see me, by the power of the Spirit, I dwell in you. So quickly, applications to those thoughts. First is this. I want you to be shocked by the radicalness of this statement. The real world is Jesus. Not that Jesus helps us to understand the real world. The real world is Jesus. This is what the Apostle Paul captured in Colossians when, no doubt, thinking about John and the Logos. John said, All things were created by him, and nothing exists except what exists in him. He was light. And Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn from all creation. For by him all things were made, things in heaven and things in earth. And in him, listen to this, in him, Jesus Christ, all things are held together So to experience reality at all is to experience the presence of Jesus Christ because you cannot experience reality. You cannot experience any kind of life without the presence of Jesus Christ. Notice what I did not say, which I take to be true. I did not say... That you cannot experience spiritual life unless you experience Jesus. That's not what I said. Which is true. What I said was the chair and the handrail and the tree and the snow and the clouds do not exist apart from Jesus. That's the kind of creator, sustainer that the Son of God is. So when we think about Jesus and a relationship with Jesus and we're just so famous as evangelicals about talking about a personal relationship with Jesus, would I affirm? We can't stop there, my friends. That is an existential, introspective, selfish point of view if that's where we end. It's all about me and my Jesus. No, the gospel of John doesn't tell that story it tells you that everything is about Jesus and you have the opportunity to step into the reality that is Jesus Christ are you going to take it that's where the decision comes in are you going to open the window or shutter it closed The second point of application is, according to John's gospel, there's a purpose for everything. In other words, history is not a succession of random and seemingly meaningless events that you have to put together in a jigsaw puzzle. I love jigsaw puzzles. There's a picture there. And eventually it becomes clear. But John is not saying, life is like that. Because in a jigsaw puzzle, I put the pieces together. In a jigsaw puzzle, I make reality. Oh, I know there's an artist that created it, but I, I construct reality. Reality. John doesn't believe we're left alone to construct our own reality. He doesn't think that these random events, which seem meaningless, can be meaningful. If we just think hard enough and figure it out on our own. If we have the best philosophy possible, that's not John. John says that these are not random events. These are not meaningless activities. The reality is that God in Jesus Christ is writing the whole story. Remember the book of Revelation? And at the end, it's going to become clear. Because finally, in the end, the God who created in Jesus Christ will restore everything new again. That's coming. He promises it. It's what he's about. And John wants us to understand that. He wants us to understand that even though we can't even always figure out God's plan, still we can trust it. Why? Because he's the creator and sustainer of the universe and he loved you enough to stand in your place so with all that information it's it's time for a decision isn't it will you follow him as a radical follower or will you just analyze bits of his wisdom By the way, the last thing I want to mention is what John says in the farewell addresses. If you make this decision, my friends, you won't be left on your own. Jesus doesn't say, make the decision and then work it out. Jesus says, make the decision and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus says, make the decision and I will send the Holy Spirit It will teach you, guide you into all truth, comfort you. As a matter of fact, as Paul would say, you've been chosen when you make that decision. And as Paul and John would say, because you've made that decision, you have been sealed By the Holy Spirit of God. Relax. Step into the reality that is Jesus. Follow Him passionately because He loves you and realize an entirely new reality. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Gospels. We have been delighted over the last four weeks to explore their differences and similarities. We also thank you that the Gospels are like a great painting, which you return to over and over again. And you see new dimensions of color and light and images that weren't present on first glance And you look at it from one side and then the other and, and then you squint. And all of those activities make the picture more real. So we pray, dear Lord, that you will allow us to enter into the life of Jesus, the light of the world and make it our life. And as we walk with you, give us new and blessed perspectives on our reality. May we see it from one angle and then another. May we squint our eyes or even close them in prayer in order to see. We ask that you will comfort us Lead us into all truth and seal your love to our hearts. In your name we pray, amen.